Okay, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13, if you look in the bulletin, you'll find that the words to our sermon text are not in there this week. They are not in there, and the reasoning behind that is that there would not be enough room. This week, we are uh, taking on the task of making our way through eight chapters of Isaiah in one Sunday. We are not going to read every single word. We're going to fly over at 30,000 feet and catch some of the uh, highlights, catch some of the uh, uh, significant aspects of the terrain. But our uh, goal this morning is to see God's glory over the nation. Let's ask God's hand upon us yet again as we open his word today. God, we pray now that you would show us your reign over the nations, and show us what this means for us as your people. Have mercy upon us by your word and in your truth. And in this we pray, amen. The Christian book bestseller list or bestseller rack at Barnes & Noble is a little different in Somalia than it is on the South Shore. Two different places. Two different circumstances. Two different contexts. And the truth of the matter is, I don't even think there is a Barnes & Noble in Somalia. But you get the idea. Where on the South Shore, in our context, we are not without trouble We are not without hardship. We are not without even grave difficulty. In fact, you may have walked into this room today feeling as if the weight of the world was on your shoulders and you did not know how you would continue onward. And yet, there are things that we do not have to fear here on the South Shore. However, if you were to be transported to Somalia or any other place that is ravaged by war, ravaged by sectarian violence, atrocities in the name of religion, or in the name of warlords, you would find a different world. You would find perhaps brothers and sisters of ours who aren't wondering the questions we are wondering. For I doubt any of us woke up this morning wondering, God, where are you as my village was burned last week and as loved ones or brothers and sisters in the faith were kidnapped and I don't know where they are or I don't even know if they are still alive. News like that is fairly distant, not fairly distant, quite distant for us. Take what Dave prayed for just a few moments ago, the rampant COVID outbreak in India. I was scrolling through news on my phone this week on, I think, Tuesday, and I see city parks in, in mega cities that just, you, you could see in the night sky, funeral pyres just, just, just uh, uh, billowing, and the flames just shooting up into the sky as bodies are burned as quickly as they can be. 
And then I scrolled on and read something about the upcoming NFL draft. That's how it works, isn't it? Yet, when we pause and when we think about atrocities that we hear about in the world, yet not something quite like India, for as terrible as that is, I'm speaking specifically about atrocities that are committed by nations or by rulers that are committed towards evil, towards ethnic cleansing, towards destroying people of a specific religious faith. What do we make of that? Where do we turn? Isaiah would tell us we see that God reigns over the nations. And so as we make a cursory trip through these eight chapters, all of which articulate a big theme of God's rule over the nations. And not just his rule over like he's in charge, like a principal is in charge at a school, but the kids are still kind of acting up in the classroom and maybe the principal doesn't know. But God's rule over the nations as one who executes his justice, one who promises right vengeance, and one who hears the cries of those suffering unspeakable evil. God sees all, God knows all, and God will act. So if we hear this rightly today, if we see this passage rightly, we will see that the God that we worship is the God who we can't domesticate into meeting our specific contextual needs alone. He is with us right here, make no mistake. And He is concerned about our needs, whatever we may be facing, even if they are what we would quote-unquote call first world problems. He is with us. But when we turn on the news and we hear of evil, may we know that He sees And eventually, he will bring all accounts due. But don't take my word for it. Look at Isaiah. I'm going to give you some of the context by inviting you to follow along as I read Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 9. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw, On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains. As of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Pause right here. I want to help us to understand what is going on. 
If you're like me, sometimes you read poetry in, in the Bible or just poetry in general. That's kind of the part of English class that I always checked out in myself. But you read it and you're like, okay, what's happening here? You know, I, I don't really grasp what, what I'm seeing. What's the imagery getting at? Well, I want you to see, you see verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. So here's what I want you to see. God is speaking to an audience of his people who would be in Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem, uh, uh, would the, the, the area and the, and the places surrounding it would be surrounded by hills, surrounded by mountains. And so what, what God is showing to them, what Isaiah is showing to them, is imagine that you hear armies, you hear kingdoms coming to war against you, and you see one coming up over this kingdom, you see one or over this hill, one coming up over this hill, one coming up over this hill, one coming up over this hill, and almost in a sense you see that God is acting in a way that you don't quite understand. And yet what Isaiah is showing God's people is that he will preserve them even as the nations rage around them. So that's what we're getting at here. Verse 6, follow along. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agonies will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the Lord of hosts comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Let us pause. You see in verses 6 as well as 9, you see references to the day of the Lord that would come. This day of the Lord is a day of God's promised judgment that you can start to trace throughout your Bible if you keep your eyes peeled for it. It is a day of God's promised judgment upon those who would oppress His people, and it is a day of God's promised rescue upon His people who would be oppressed. You see, here's something I want us all to understand. We live in an exceptionally different context than many of our ancestors in the faith ever would have known or ever would have imagined. Oftentimes, they were outnumbered numerically. They were without any political clout or power when compared with their neighbors and oftentimes, you, you, you consider just the, the, the course of biblical history, the great, the great events of the Old Testament, one of which being the, the, one of the chief triumphant events being the people of Israel in Egypt under the oppressive slave-driving hand of the Egyptians, only to be brought out by the miraculous hand of God. And so God, speaking to His people, begins to articulate this theme where on the day of the Lord... Judgment will come upon all who commit injustice against the people of God and even against those who are not a part of the people of God, but all who commit injustice and evil in their midst. 
And you know, as we consider the nations, we don't have to look very far in the rearview mirror to see the evil that mankind is capable of. I started to try to write down evil leaders, evil governments, evil actions committed throughout just recent past. I thought of Hitler, the Holocaust, Stalin and the atrocities committed by communist Russia, Pol Pot, the atrocities committed there. And I I started to scroll through, uh, uh, you know, genocides in Africa and in uh, 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 places, uh, I'm forgetting some of the nations off the top of my head, but you start to think through, and this is just over the last, let's say, hundred years, and you start to see that, wow, this world is capable of evil. And so maybe that is the first thing that you start to pull from this today is that God is not distant and detached as if he looks like Gandalf and he's playing a harp on a cloud, but rather he sees the evil of this world. And may we start to take that to heart as we read the news, but also maybe we need to take that to heart as we consider our lives and we think as if the scope and the nature of our lives is out from under the glance and the glare of God. Now, you might say, hold on, Stephen, I'm not committing any genocide here. I don't think any of us are. But may we just see that of all the acts in the world, all of the behaviors, the actions, the words that we all exhibit day by day, week by week, God sees all. God knows all. And what we start to see as he engages with the nations, is that he opposes the proud. The evils of the Holocaust began in an arrogant, proud, prideful heart that viewed one group of people as superior to others. God opposes the proud. Jump all the way to Isaiah 16. You're thinking, all right, Stephen, wow, we started in chapter 13. Now we're in 16. You really are moving through eight chapters. Yes, I'm a man of my word. I want you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. So God has promised oracles towards Babylon. And and we'll touch back on Babylon in a moment. But Babylon, Philistia, Moab. And now he's given an oracle towards Moab as we get to chapter 16. And he says in chapter 16, verse 1 and following, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by the water of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. So are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of the noon. At the height of noon, shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. That sounds really good. God is going to stamp out the evil of Moab. And King Jesus is going to reign over it. But the problem we have to consider as God's 
opposition to our pride is what we read in verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Heretzeth. Here's what we see. God opposes our pride. The people of Moab, under the judgment of God, are crying out for mercy. Yet, there is a problem. Moab refuses to entrust herself to the God who reigns over her. Isaiah looks with astonishment He sees how proud Moab is. Look at the four words for pride in verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, his boasting. He is not right. And yet they are following four words in verse 5. Steadfast love, faithfulness, justice, righteousness. Moab could have enjoyed the steadfast love of God the faithfulness of God, the kindness of God, but her own arrogance, her own pride, her own insolence could not get out of the way. And it is at this point where you might hear a warning to to, to our government leaders or to government leaders elsewhere in the world, and perhaps if I had another platform, that's where it might come in. But just as I Imagine none of us are committing genocide or none of us are committing any terrible atrocities in our life. None of us are, any, are in, in any significant seats of government power. And so lest I preach to, the, to, to, to those beyond us without feeding those amongst us, let us hear, simply hear the warning against hoping in God's steadfast love and in His compassion, and in His grace, yet refusing to acknowledge and to repent and turn from any arrogance in our soul, any pride that we will refuse to surrender, any boasting, any insolence. I was reading one commentator this week who made the point how often, sadly, as pastors Do we hear of those who are literally on their deathbed and when they are urged to turn to Christ before it is too late to be saved from the judgment of God that is to come even as all physical strength of this life has left them they refuse to humble their hearts and trust in Christ. What a terrible tragedy Perhaps you have seen that, whether it be with loved ones or with friends who you urge to turn to the Lord before it is too late. God is opposed to the proud. In fact, the very essence of sin is refusing to humble oneself before God. The very essence of sin is making ourselves gods. If we were to rewind out of the hills of Jerusalem and return to the Garden of Eden, 
we would see that the sin of Adam and Eve was one in which they believed that they knew better than God. Just as the Moabites did. Just as I still struggle with today. Just as you still struggle with today. But the question is, is your pride willing to be put on check? A great diagnostic tool. Ask those around you. Later today, this week, how well do I accept constructive criticism? How willing am I to be corrected? How understanding am I when others say to me, hey, you've, you've hurt me in this, or your words cut me in a way here I don't think you realized? Or do we dismiss, discard, push away, disabuse ourselves of such folly, for we would not be such people? The danger in hearing warnings to nations is that we don't hear warnings to ourselves. We may not be kings and queens of Moab, but the pride of our sinful hearts tells us that we can be kings and queens of our world. Let us hear the warning to Moab lest we fall. But let us move on. High above the nations gathering around the mountains, we see that God reigns in unchallenged sovereignty. Perhaps the solution to any pride, any vestiges of pride that might be creeping up within us Any pride that we would be careful not to repent of. That we would chalk up to, oh, that's just who I am, or that's just a personality quirk of mine. The thing that collides with any of that is the truth of the reign of our God. Turn back to Isaiah 14, verses 24 through 27. You hear this and you say, "Uh uh-oh, we're going back the wrong way. No, we'll get to the end. But turn back to Isaiah 14, verses 24 to 27. God, speaking an oracle concerning the Assyrians, says some things that we would be wise to hear as we consider the majesty of God. The greatest prescription for pride in your heart and in mine is is not just someone telling us where we are wrong. That is a good prescription many times. But the greatest prescription for pride in your heart and mine is to see how small we really are in compared with our God, who is so great, we cannot reach, we cannot fathom the bounds of His greatness. Look at what he says to the Assyrians in verse 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? 
Can I tell you a little pastor trick? I don't think there's anything wrong with this pastor trick. In fact, I do it quite often. When I am talking with somebody who is going through a sorrowful time, a difficult time, one of the great things I try to remind them of is something I try to remind myself of very often. And that is that I am in the hand of the Lord. You, if you are a Christian, you are in the hand of the Lord and nothing can take you out of his hand. There is nothing that can destroy you. The words of the Apostle Paul are absolutely clear that, th- that no, no height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can remove us, can pull us from the love of God. Yet, that, that's the pastor trick. You're in the hand of God, know that you are loved. But the other thing that we must remember as a warning to us, as a siren call to the nations, is the hand of God is one of love to those who are His, and yet it is one of wrath to those who would pridefully turn their nose against Him. You are in the hand of God. Is it a hand of love and keeping through Christ and through your clinging closely to Him? Through your humble, through your humble, desperate reliance upon Him? Or is it the hand of judgment where you are sauntering about in a world pridefully unaware of the fact that God has created your days. And even as verse 26 says, He has a purpose that He has purposed concerning the whole earth. Next time you get too big for your britches, maybe turn to Isaiah 14. Next time you wonder why something is happening in your life, or you even wonder as you turn on the news and you see that the the bad news is spiraling out of control, and you say, is God there? That is one of the most predominant questions that anyone asks, including myself in the past, but when I was wrestling over the truths and the valid claims of Christianity, I did not need a God who was there for me as I drank uh, uh, frou-frou drinks at Starbucks and felt all the creature comforts of this life. I needed a God that could answer for atrocities like the Holocaust. And Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27 says, This is the purpose concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Our brothers and sisters in the faith, in Somalia, in Iran, in other places where the name of Christ and professing it is the most dangerous thing anyone can do. This is the kind of thing that gives them perhaps not comfort, but assurance. God sees the evil perpetuated against them. God's hand is upon us Will we see it? And will we look to Him? Turn back to Isaiah 17. 
Let's consider the Moabite, or let's consider the people of Damascus. Isaiah 17, verses 7 and 8. The question the nations are, that is put before, some of the nations is put before us. What will we do with this? Will we look to God? As we begin to conclude, Isaiah 17, verses 7 and 8. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, to the works of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. And that day their strong cities will be like deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. The Bible speaks of a faith that overcomes the world. It's in 1 John chapter 5. Do you have a faith that overcomes the world? Perhaps you have been wrestling through that struggle in your mind. I don't know how to entrust blank to God. It is safe to bet that a marauding band of evil men will not invade your neighborhood tonight. And yet the thing that might keep you up tonight is just as real and just as serious in your mind. The worst thing we could do to this or do is read passages like this and detach ourselves far from it to the point that the power and the might of God that we see over the nations, we feel as if we don't have access to that. We read this that we get awareness of God's glory over the nations, but also that we might get mercy in seeing that we are included in those whom he is glorious over. And so you may not have a marauding band of invaders that that, that walk through your neighborhood burning down houses tonight. But what will keep you awake? What is the news that you would have to hear that would keep you from a good night's sleep? What is the phone call that you would have to receive? What loved one or doctor or co-worker would deliver the news that would cripple you right where you are and cause you to cry out, where are you, God? I feel as if the, the hills around me are somehow growing and the armies are descending upon the city of my life. Only you can answer what that would be. But God can answer a stabilizing hope. That in that day, man will look to his maker. His eyes will look upon the Holy One of Israel. Only you can answer. But what Isaiah holds before you and me is a call to know that God is there, that God reigns. That he calls you and me to humble ourselves before him and to recognize that we who are in Christ can look forward to that day of the Lord 
when it may not be the death and the destruction of enemies who have brought death and destruction upon our people. But that day of the Lord will be life and salvation and a wiping away of the tears from your eyes and a day in which we will see our Lord and we will enjoy His presence. That day of the Lord is coming. May that day of the Lord be your hope as your heart fears today. And may that day of the Lord be the fuel for your prayers and for mine as we see our brothers and sisters around the globe endure evil and atrocity for the name of Christ. May that day of the Lord be their hope. And may we pray that day of the Lord all the more near. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 13 through 20 invites us to see the sovereignty of God standing amidst the roar of the nations. To hear the promise of God And to hear the hope of what we know is the the reign of God today and the rule of God for eternity. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 20. Or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 19. As God promises hope, and blessing to all who will look upon him, even to ones who were in those nations who turned away. Perhaps that is where you are. Is it too late to turn? No. No, it is not. Listen to Isaiah chapter 19, verses 19 through 25 as we close. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they, cry to, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and will deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Uh, Strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance." The Lord of hosts will do this. Those who will enjoy him are those who have humbled themselves before them and have cast themselves into the love of Christ. For nothing can take them out of the hand of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, as we conclude, we pray that you would help us to leave here this day with greater awe before your might, with greater trust 
in your majesty and with greater humility before you. We pray that each of us, having seen this in Isaiah, would leave with just a glimpse, greater awareness of your glory and and, and majesty and a glimpse smaller of ourselves that we may humbly cling to you, trust in you, and glory in you. And may the day of the Lord be a day of hope for us, your church, and may it be a day of hope for brothers and sisters of ours around the globe who face unspeakable opposition to the name of Christ. Lord, help us to understand your glory over the nations and help it give strength to our prayers today. You are not a domesticated God who we put on the dashboard of our car. You are the God who rules over all things. Therefore, we can bring all things before you. I pray for my brother or sister today who is having trouble in trusting you with whatever may be big or whatever may be small. Help us all to submit all things before you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.